Okay. Great. Well, first we would like to welcome everyone for coming in here today. We are so excited to be part of this conference and this conversation because that's really what's happening today is it's an opportunity for all of us stakeholders who have committed our careers and our lives to helping children succeed. And we're all here together out of love and passion and professionalism to come together to find ways that we've really been struggling with for a very long time with our students. So a lot of the, the struggles students are facing aren't necessarily new struggles, but they have definitely changed even in the last 10 years. The struggles we've seen our students experiencing are, I think, struggles we never even predicted or expected. So we're from Dayton. Can you be a little louder? Oh, I can. Oh, there's a microphone. Thank you for that input. There we go. So we're in the Dayton, Ohio area, and what we know in Ohio is that Dayton is an epicenter of the opioid epidemic. Because of the opioid epidemic, Ohio has been left with a tremendous number of children who no longer have their parents who can take care of them. So what is happening to those children? A lot of them are going from one foster home to another. Some of them are staying in one stable foster home. Some are being adopted. Some are living with distant relatives. But what we do know is that our children are facing so many struggles today, not only the struggles of their own parents, um, well, not their own struggles, but the struggles of their parents, right? Because we're seeing so many difficulties. So I think that's one of the big reasons we all came here today is to talk about our, our struggling students. And we also know that our struggling students are this really big spectrum, right? There is no, you can't say, hey, show me what a struggling student looks like. Okay, you might be able to point some of them out, right? The ones that are just shovels and, and really just kind of a hot mess. But we can't pick all of them out. I can't look at someone and say, oh, that person's never had trauma because that person is a professional or that person is super adorable. We can never discount the past experiences an individual has had that they bring with them to the table. Our students are a special situation because they're all children. So there's so many things they still don't know. They don't know they have a right to boundaries. They don't know how to build their own connections. They don't have blueprints for those connections. Um, and so they have to learn all of those things from their primary caregivers and their secondary caregivers. And we're some of those people. We're some of the secondary, and in some cases, primary caregivers of those children. So thanks for coming. Um, to our presentation, and it's called Building Connections to Help Every Kid or Child Succeed. And what Shaylin and I are going to talk about today is a lens, a multi-theoretical lens for implementing social-emotional learning. Oof. Shay, I am feeling, my, my palms are sweating and I can feel my heart be <laughs> racing really fast. What's going on with me? I'm really nervous too, so you're not alone. Oh, but it sounds to me that you are in your survival brain right now. Your vagus nerve break has been released, and you are being flooded with some stress hormones. We have cortisol, and I feel that feeling a little fight and yes. flighty right now, aren't you? A little bit. I definitely yeah. like. I can feel my arms kind of like shaking right now. Yeah, a little nervous. So you think I'm having a polyvagal response right now? You are definitely having a polyvagal response. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I can, am too. Can I get through this is my question now. If I am in survival brain right now, how am I going to get through this presentation in front of all of these beautiful people who came? Well, I'm here with you. Thank you. We're going to get through this together. 
you know a lot of co-regulation techniques to help you get through this. That's and true. And we are amongst safe people. It's oh, a safe place. I'm in a safe room, and safe I've got room. you to help me. Yeah. Okay. So we can do this. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Whew, take a deep breath. Right? So what we want to talk about today is this multi-theoretical lens that Shayla and I have put together based on what we know about mental health, what we know about education, how do children learn, and what we know about the education system, right? Because our schools are a system and we need to be able to function and operate and move within this system. We also understand how overburdened schools are with everything, right? I don't even need to go through that list for all of us. So those are the things that we've been thinking about as we try to bring this multi-theoretical lens together. We love SEL programming. Social emotional learning is really, is truly what every child needs. But like our speakers were saying earlier today, sometimes there's a disconnect that's still happening. Why, and so we're talking about this, like why is that? Social emotional learning is wonderful. PBIS has been around for a long time, but why is it that we're still feeling a disconnect in some of our classrooms and with some of our SEL programs? So that again is the theoretical, multi-theoretical lens we're starting to put together is how do we find those connections so that students have the safety they need in order to function? So we're going to begin by talking a little bit about developmental theory and our hierarchy of needs because Eric Erickson and Abram Maslow really had it going when they were recognizing the way children begin to develop from birth on up into the adult years and beyond. But we're only going to talk about people up until the age of adolescence. We're going to talk about attachment theory because again what we know is that attachment begins from birth. When children are born, when babies are born, what do hospitals try to make happen as fast as possible? Skin-to-skin -skin contact, because it's the very beginning of forming that attachment bond with the primary caregiver. But sometimes we get glitches in our lives that might impact our ability to form these vital attachments. We're gonna talk a little bit about polyvagal theory, because the polyvagal system is what tunes us into safety, but also when we're talking about kids who've gone through a lot of adversities, their body, our bodies go boink, and it just pops right into that survival mode, and our brains sometimes can't override that. And that's what we are seeing in some of our children in our school, so we'll spend some time talking about that. And that is known as the survival brain versus thinking brain. So we wanna know when our kids are going into survival brain, what are the cues? And how do we get those kids back into thinking, learning brain? And this is true for all people, not just kids. Um, we have to be in a thinking brain or have some protective factors to allow us to continue to function if we're in that survival brain. And we don't know because again, I can't look at a child and say, oh, you're definitely in thinking brain. You're definitely in survival brain. Sometimes we can say that and sometimes we can't. So finally, we'll take all of that and put it together and we'll talk about how we can help children to build connections in their own lives, but also how we can build positive connections with children, especially the ones we're struggling the most with. How do we do that? Well, first we have to understand what's happening with those kids we're struggling the most, most in their areas of development, in their areas of attachment, and in their areas of safety or that polyvagal response system that's just happening without their will. 
and then finally, hopefully we'll get to talking more about what teachers can do in the classroom. So we're trying to shove a six hour presentation <laughs> into one hour for you. So Shaylin, can you please elaborate more on why this is so important today? Yes, and just a uh, trigger warning. Thank you. Uh, we're not gonna go deep into trauma, but oftentimes when we say the word trauma or we talk about ACEs, which we will talk about just briefly, we tend to think of our own, so we tend to add up our own ACEs and think about that. So just a trigger warning for all of you in here. Um, I feel that we will be safe, it'll be okay, but if you need to take a step out, do it. Someone will follow you or we can talk to you after as well. Okay, moving on. So we're looking at the current climate of what's going on in the states right now and also in Ohio. So we can see these huge numbers right here. I could read those off, but I get a little tongue-tied when the numbers get past three <laughs> consistent numbers. But we can see that we have more and more children being um, identified and reported to CPS. Um, neglect is rising, and when we talk about ACEs, 61% of us have one ACE, and about 32% have four or more. And when we talk about ACEs, we know that that is not just a mental emotional thing, it's also a biological aspect of well, as well. What we can see as well, that with the rise of mental illness, challenging behaviors, uh, there's more and more suspensions and expulsions happening. Younger students, I'm talking toddler age students, are being expelled. And reason for that is that disconnect we're talking about in the classroom, bridging that gap of mental health and teaching. So we want to give you guys the tools that you need to support your students in the classroom, having an understanding of mental health, of trauma, how that looks, to be able to support your students and yourselves. Yes, and yourselves. Thanks for saying that, Shaylin. And I, we're gonna talk a little bit about self-care at the end of the presentation, but you know how the end can go? And self-care is so important. Um, it, it's hard to squeeze that at the end, but, but you know why we squeeze it at the end? Because it's us, right? We always take care of ourselves last um, in education, but it is so important that we have a movement in our field where we are really supporting the mental health of our teachers. That stress level of teachers is so high that teachers have to leave their jobs just to preserve their own mental health. And that's not what we want in our schools. We want our schools to be safe and to, to acknowledge our need to reduce stress. Yeah. Right? Okay. So we know that our children, and really, again, all people, have these basic needs. But it's especially vital for our children in schools because they are still in the process of mapping in their brain what social skills are, what emotions are, what behaviors mean, their own place in the world. So we know that children have to feel safe and secure. And we'll talk about Maslow and Eric Erickson in a minute. We know that they need to develop a sense of self-worth. And Eric Erickson talks a lot about that. And while I'm reading these off, think a little bit about what happens if the child does not feel safe and secure. What happens if the child does not feel loved or even have a sense of self-worth? If you don't feel loved, how can you develop a sense of self-worth? And if you don't develop a sense of self-worth and you walk into the schools, how might you behave while you're there? 
We know that children don't just need attention, but they actually need to be understood. And we also know that language development is happening, right? So sometimes our kids can't really express to us how they feel or what they think. And if they're in survival brain, they really are feeling a sense of chaos, but they don't know how to bring it back into thinking brain yet. And so if they're not learning that and their primary connections, we get them in our rooms and we get them in our buildings and we're trying to figure out what do we do to help? What do we do to help? Well, we've got PBIS, we've got SEL, we have behavior systems, but for some reason we're not catching all these kids. So hopefully our multi-theoretical lens will help us get there a little closer. Um, so they need to be understood. Children do especially well if there is control in the environment and predictability. That's where we say our rules need to be firm, fair, and consistent. They need to know what to expect. They need to know, well, what they're supposed to do, what are their expectations, and they know that if they don't follow through with those expectations, what's gonna happen next? That next is a big one for these kids, and it needs to be very consistent for them. They need to know how to handle strong feelings. How many of you have met a child who just could not handle their strong feelings? Yeah, probably every one of us, right? And the good news is that if they're not learning how to regulate those strong emotions from their home life, they can learn it from all of us in the school buildings. But we're gonna have to take a, a teaching approach to this. Um, they need to feel like they can be independent and that they're competent. Again, back to Eric Erickson. You can see I might have a small uh, crush, uh, professional crush here. <laughs> um, we all need to feel like we're, we can be independent and we all need to feel like we can be competent, right? I need to know I can do that and do a good job. But what if every day in my household, nobody tells me I do a good job, but they actually tell me I'm no, never doing a good job. How is that kid coming to us in the classroom? And we know those kids are coming, right? Um, we know that our kids need to be engaged so they can learn, right? They need, they need to open their curious brains so that they can ask questions and they can grow and develop. Um, but if they don't feel safe and they don't feel connected, this can't always happen. In fact, it becomes much, much more difficult for them to open that curiosity in their minds if they're constantly, their, their polyvagal is still sound. There might be subconscious, there might be a threat, there might be a threat, you might do something wrong, you're gonna get in trouble, and kids will react different ways about that. Finally, they need to have a sense of belonging. We all need a sense of belonging. We all need to be bonded and connected with other people. We're communal beings. And our children are too, but sometimes our children aren't in a life situation where they're feeling like they belong or they're wanted or they're enjoyed or that someone delights in them. So again, if those kids come to us, what do we do? So here's, here's that slide that I love. So what I did here is I took Eric Erickson stages, which are the colorful stages. Normally we see them the other way. We see trust versus mistrust at the top, and then we go to autonomy and shame and doubt. But I wanted to line these up with Abram Maslow's hierarchy of needs to start asking those questions. Well, what does this look like for our kids? So if I've got a child who by the, under the age of two was in that trust versus mistrust stage, that stage that sets hope for the world, and that child does not gain trust, a sense of trust and security or a sense of safety in that bottom rung, 
How do they move forward? What does that child look like when they move up to autonomy and shame and doubt? So, so what if the child starts under two, gets that sense of security and trust, but moves on up to the next stage of autonomy versus shame and doubt, and during that stage, hey, life has changed, it's become stressful, um, we're moving around a lot maybe, family changes, who knows? And during that process, it was just a lot of don't do that, sit down, be quiet, be seen and not heard, and maybe worse, right? So that child in the autonomy versus shame and doubt may not get those protective factors met. And then they move up to the next stage of love and belonging, initiative versus guilt or industry. Or initiative versus guilt or industry versus inferiority. So again, we'll illustrate this again in the presentation, how when we're meeting these children in our schools, we need to be able to look at these multiple factors. We need to ask the questions, do I think this child had these needs met at the appropriate developmental stage in his life? And we can start putting these into tallies, protective factor, risk factor. And we can start building a map of the child that we're working with. So again, we're talking about these healthy attachments. So healthy attachments give all of us a really special gift. And that is the ability to regulate our emotions. We learn how to respond and regulate our emotions from the attachments in our lives. So hopefully we're able to, to learn that from our primary caregivers. So when the child gets hurt, the caregiver says, are you okay? I noticed you got hurt, I care about you, I want you to be well. If that doesn't happen, then the child figures out a way to cope. It may be to shut down, it may be to become more excitable faster, right? It might be to go the other direction, it may be become, to become resistant, angry. So if the child didn't learn those emotion regulation skills in their own home lives, they can also learn these at school because teachers are secondary attachment figures. Teachers, friends, um, maybe other babysitters, perhaps uh, the parents of our friends could be secondary attachments. Um, and those secondary attachments can help us feel the things we need to regulate, which is I'm safe. I feel valued, I feel bonded. So if I have an experience where a nerve got hurt inside of me and I bust out with something really negative, is the person I'm with going to forgive me and love me? Or are they gonna decide I don't deserve their friendship or love any longer? So with, with healthy secondary attachments, I can discover, hey, I can make a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. And in this space, my space at school, where we believe in social-emotional learning, and we believe in connections, and we believe in safety, I might not trust today, but if you keep trying to pull me in with a connection, and you keep trying to help me to feel safe, then I can start learning something different, right? Because my blueprint got formed in my home life. But now I can get another blueprint when I'm at school and I'm experiencing different responses to the way I behave as a child. So to do this, we need warm, responsive relationships where children feel safe and secure. We need an environment that makes self-regulation manageable. So again, a school that supports SEL. 
Um, and also buffers against stresses. So a lot of schools are bringing in safe spaces, which are wonderful ideas because those can help us buffer against stresses. Um, good relationships that the teacher has gotten to know that student and they see something's a little different. That can also buffer against stress. So having those caring, warm connections that are noticing you, being noticed is nice, right? Um, and then skill instruction to teach and support those self-regulation skills. So kids do, today we think that kids need to learn more about what emotions are. How do we identify emotions? How many words do we have for anger? What do we know about anger? What I can tell you is, I'm gonna pull on my counseling hat, anger is never just anger. It is never just anger. If you've got an angry kid, I will guarantee you there is something much deeper beneath that surface. And while I don't know this random hypothetical kid, Science and research tells us most likely that's a kid who's got a lot of aces in their background and they're just doing the dog paddle to survive. Well, what do I do to survive? It's gonna be a different answer for different people based on the polyvagal response that they're, they're experiencing. So good news for all of us as teachers because emotion regulation is developed over time. So if that window, if, if the child comes to us at whatever age, it could be high school, there is still time to learn. This window doesn't close for us. We can get help. And we can get help through those relationships that we, we have with others. We shouldn't be afraid of each other. We don't want our kids to be afraid of us in the schools. But are they going to make mistakes and do we need to point them out? Yeah, that's what we do in school. So how do we find a safe way to do that with our most at-risk students? We want to give them these items. Um, so we also know that the secondary science tells us that secondary attachments at school help children to regulate their emotions. It increases their resiliency. It allows them the ability to focus and therefore translates into their academic performance, right? Because if you're coming to school and you're feeling, your, your system is saying, there could be danger, I don't know. I mean, danger could jump out at me at any time, anywhere, any place, because that's what I, that was my blueprint. Um, oh, I just lost my spot. Uh, so if they're feeling that way, they can relearn that when they come into school. Um, it can also help our children can start developing secure relationships and we know that it just takes one secure relationship and you've heard this earlier this morning even and I think we all know this it only takes one it only takes one but hopefully we're in a building where it's all where we're all using a trauma sensitive lens and we're attending to the connections and the attachment and the safety of our kids so that they do feel supported but I do want to point out that even with great attachments at school, traumatized kids are still going to remain on high alert and they will remain susceptible to survival brain moments, most likely until they're old enough or able to have that self-awareness so that they can intentionally work on that characteristic that they're living with. And that's probably going to happen in adulthood. So, some children do need help learning some of these qualities, like again, that vocabulary for diverse emotions. They need help learning the rules and knowing how to do the things we're asking them to do. So again, with social emotional learning, we're starting to teach kids how to 
behave in our class, how to behave and, and function and operate outside at recess, how to start forming healthy relationships with their friends, um, especially same-age peers. So to, to do that, as teachers, we need to start by meeting the child where he or she is. Well, I shouldn't say start, we do, don't we? We do meet the children where they are, but we need to understand a little deeper about our kids today because of everything they're facing, the kids didn't face in the past. So we can model that emotion regulation. When the kid gets heated and worked up, we can't do the same thing, right? We have to show that child how to regulate our emotions when we're not happy with the situation. Um, build relationships with those at-risk kids. Sometimes in some districts, they will get they will form teams where they go through every single student in their building and identify, hey, who in this room is forming an attachment with this student we're talking about? And if we discover, oh, look, nobody, nobody said I'm building an attachment. All right, we want to we want to tag that student, and we want to focus on helping that child form an attachment in our school. Because without a friend, what's it like if you go into space and you have no friend, or you feel like you have no friend? It's tough, right? Um, multidisciplinary teams are very helpful to be able to look at all of these perspectives and to understand the whole spectrum of the child. And also, our school counselors are there to help you. School counselors are trained um, in both education, child development, and mental health. So they can serve as really excellent consultants to help you understand what's happening with these kids and what specifically and what we can do with them. Judy. Shay, will you tell us more about what's happening to some of our kids? Yeah, so when we're talking about these connections, we do have to acknowledge the students who have been through the worst of the worst. So ACEs. Like you all know, um, ACEs happen, they're potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood ages zero to 17. So pretty much in utero, that's when ACEs can start to develop. Um, the trauma include those factors there. 61% of children ages birth to 17 have one or more. One in six have four or more. And what we know about ACEs, those with ACEs have a shorter lifespan, more likely to commit suicide, more likely to develop alcoholism, um, have a mental illness, a developmental delay, um, develop later in life diabetes and other diseases. It sounds terrifying, and it is, but with protective factors, with making and building safe connections, having a trusted person in your life, having a safe environment, you imagine um, a balance beam, your aces never go away. They'll be there, no matter how many. The aces will still be there. But on the other end, when we keep adding on protective factors in a safe person, in a safe environment, those aces, the effect of the aces start to go down and the positives rise. So when we're talking about everyone in here to be that secondary connection, to be that positive person in that individual's life, that's what we're talking about here. So, to truly be able to build those connections, we need to understand the impact of trauma. And it's not just the ones that are severe cases, the ACEs, but it's also those who are, have our occasional safety, or fear of feeling unsafe in an environment. Those are developmentally appropriate things that children and us still go through. And just like what Dr. McFarland was talking about, we 
have an idea of how do we save these severe kids, these troubled kids, the ones with the challenging problems, but then we also have the other kids here who aren't severe, but are going through developmental normal things that we want to be able to protect as well. So we're going to talk about polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory is that it's part of the, the ANS, it's the, the automatic nervous system. And the polyvagal theory, I'm going to swoop between a few slides, has three domains. That vagus nerve that's right behind here. Oh, okay, let me explain my hand as well. When I'm talking about the brain, I use the hand brain. Does anyone know about the hand brain? Yeah, okay, some of you. So let me briefly go over. So your wrist is the spinal cord. It's in charge of everything that you have no idea that it's doing it on its own. Your heart rate, digestion, breathing. And then your thumb is your emotional brain, the animal brain. And then fingers folded on top, that's your higher level of thinking. That's your cerebral cortex. That's where you can um, make connections and reasoning with your emotions. So, so I mean, when I was yeah. feeling anxiety at the beginning, you flew session, open. It flew open. It flew open, and you were thinking with your emotions. And then you said, it's okay, I'm here, and you're in safe space. And I'm trying to close you back up. And so you brought me back into safety. Yeah. Thank you, Shayla. You're welcome. <laughs> so also, um, Stephen Porges, who uh, is the one, the father of polyvagal theory, talks about the vagus break, which is in this the animal brain. And that vagus break is what's holding you it's holding you together, keeping you feeling safe and keeping this part closed on. And then when you're feeling unsafe, that break came off and now your emotions are everywhere, your cortisol and your stress hormones are flowing through and you're having all of that automatic um, parasympathetic response. So we had the three domains. We had the ventral vagal, which is safety and connection. That's your higher level of thinking. Um, that's social engagement, um, ability to talk and engage, co-regulate, and remain calm. That's your nice baseline of feeling safe with someone. You can see that physically as well. Someone's smiling, their eyes are turned up, they have a nice glisten in their eyes, their voices are even have a, like a sing-songy thing to it, like, oh, how are you today? Oh, that's great, or just more positive tone to it. Um, those who are not connected in that, I like to, I heard on a podcast they use the teacher from Ferris Bueller. They're like, Bueller, Bueller, so monotone, he's probably not feeling safe. Then we have this uh, sympathetic vagal, which is your fight and flight. Um, that's controlling your limbs, so that part of the nerve is controlling all the limbs, so that's why you go into fight or you're running away. And dorsal vagal, that is controlling down here. That's your diaphragm, your gut. That's where you're going to disassociate. You're going to zone out. You're going to have that kid that just completely blanked and probably put their head down. I'm going to talk a lot about the ventral vagal. That's the one that's up in the front, controls heart and chest and up. And that's your safety connection. When we're talking about trust versus mistrust, that is a very important stage in a, a child's life. Um, also, because of biology, that ventral vagal nerve, I'm about to get so nerd on you guys, it is not myelinated yet. From birth, it, is, it still needs to build up, which is why they need to have those positive connections to learn how to create the um, higher level of thinking, the reasoning, uh, that safety connection which is also, if we're looking at brain development, it starts with the brain stem and then the emotions and then that cortex. 
So if we even go deeper into in utero, if the, there's a picture happening right now. I didn't know what to do. Okay. <laughs> this has never happened before. So if we're going into in utero and that uh, the fetus is stressed out. It's going to disconnect. It's not going to connect well with the higher level of thinking. So if we are talking about two cases here. Can I interrupt you real yeah. quick? Shaylin, can you explain to us, like, when is that myelination done? Like, 5, 12, 18? I am not sure the actual stop date, but it is a process that's going on to complete that connection there. Just Does like... happen the same way for all kids? Yeah, building that connection. No, I mean the timeline. Oh, the no. No, being... it's not the same timeline. No. Right. Um, so if we're talking about two scenarios here... So we have one student sitting in math class given a math assignment, a packet to do well in class. That kid is, has no idea what they're doing. They're looking over it and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing, I need help. If I go up to my teacher, is my teacher going to get mad at me? Are they going to tell me, you should have been paying attention, we just went over this, the answers were on the board, why aren't you paying attention? Are my classmates going to think that I'm dumb walking up there? I don't want to be embarrassed. But I gotta do this, I need good grades. So the kid goes through that scenarios. And the kid finally gets up and goes to the teacher and gets help. And the teacher calmly helps them with their homework and the kid sits back down and gets to work. That kid, whether or not has been through trauma, the bottom line, that kid has built safe connections somewhere in their life. Either their primary blueprint, that they trust that their parents are able to give them that courage and ability that if you approach me, I'm going to talk to you calmly. Or their secondary ones, their other teachers, or other administrators or coaches. They trust because of past experiences, I can approach you and ask you for help without you making me feel bad for it. Children who are in that ventral vagal, that connection, that safety brain, have the confidence and security to be able to regulate back down and be able to handle an adverse feeling. They can pop back from it. Another situation. Same class, student gets a math assignment, they don't know what they're doing. They're ha going through all those scenarios, but they're like, you know what, I know, I know this teacher is going to snap at me. I know kids are going to laugh at me. I'm putting my head down. Teacher across sees the kid, head down, tells him, get your head up. Please raise your head. Please get to work kid said screw it and walks out so where was this kid is he here no he was here he didn't throw a fit he didn't throw things around or call the teachers names he just walked out and he put his head down so he was in this dorsal vagal disassociated the teacher paid attention to him and then he decided to just leave so that is also what survival brain looks like it's not that stereotypical, the kid's throwing papers or he's having a fight in the hall. It can be as simple as that. And that could be something I'm sure you educators in here had know that student. Know that student's always putting their head down. Now, here's another tricky part. Does that also seem like developmentally appropriate? Kids get tired, they're going to put their head down, they don't want to do something. We're like, oh, it's lazy, it's part of adolescence. Yeah, it is. I'm not asking you to think like, 
that kid, oh, I thought it was developing appropriately, but that kid's been through trauma. We gotta get to this kid, to the counselor. I want you to use your developmental lens with that trauma-informed lens. So just have it in your back of your mind. Maybe that kid either needs to take a break from this, because like we saw in the videos, they're doing a lot of things at home. So maybe they need to take a break and I can address them later. And this was, I should have taken this slide out, but also we know that stress can affect the other di digestive systems and physical parts, that you may have a student who comes in with frequent tummy aches. We see that a lot in younger kids. Their stomach is always upset, like a headache. That can also be a sign of stress as well, that they're not just, they heard what a tummy ache is and it gets them to the nurse. It could actually be stress at home, that that's how they're dealing with it. It's showing up in that way. So trauma presents in the following ways, things that we did talk about. It can be fear, um, unable to bounce back from perceived slight. So like that student who put his head down, he wasn't able to get back up. He wasn't able to get back to work, he left. The student who had those positive connections was able to bounce back. You know, they got through it, it was a little embarrassing, they got the little armpit sweats from it, but they got back to work. Inability to trust others, impulsivity, lack of cause and effect thinking, lack of empathy, lack of remorse, that complete shutdown, daydreaming, because that could be their escape, is to just zone out because they gotta get out of someplace. Depression and constant anger. Do you have anything to add? You good? Um, this is our last slide for trauma. Yeah, okay. okay. Just checking in on you, buddy. Yeah. Okay, so another little graph to show what we're talking about when we talk about the survival brain and the thinking brain to line it up with our polyvagal systems. So we see the dorsal vagal is the freeze, that disassociation, the shutdown, that numbness. That's also a depressive mode that students go through, or even us go through it. So it um, might look like you're a disconnected kid, yeah. right? Do you have any kids that are just kind of disconnected from their environment, from their peers, from all of their teachers? This could be your disconnected kid. And that's that survival mode that they're in. Then you have the fight or flight, the ones who are raging in anger and frustrated, the ones that when we think of trauma and a kid and trauma, our brains kind of go to this section. And then also the panic and the fear and worrying, that's still that survival brain. And down here is the social engagement, your thinking brain, that higher level of thinking and learning, the ventral vagal, the safety and connected part where we can calmly communicate with others. We can take adversity, so if someone argues with us, we can take that. If someone disagrees, we're not gonna fight back with them, say, okay, disagreement, I appreciate your view on that, and be able to move on. And that's what a safety connected brain helps students create. Here's yours. So we also want to point out that you know trauma looks so many different ways. It just it doesn't mean just an abusive household. Right? Trauma can happen um, in a lot of different ways, including divorce, deployment, family changes, remarriage. There are a lot of um, illness. Children who have had um, painful illnesses or prolonged stays in hospitals, they're experiencing some ACEs for those things too. So again, trauma does not just mean the kids who have maybe suffered um, abuse or neglect. There are other traumas that can happen to us in our lives that are 
no fault of anyone's. It's just that sometimes life has its own adversaries built into it. So it's really vital for all of our kids that they are able to get into survival or into thinking learning brain instead of that survival brain because we can't really think well we can't really solve problems well and we can't really learn well if our parasympathetic nervous system that we have little control over is in our back subconscious still saying you could be in danger you could be in danger so those kids are learning less than they have the ability to learn just because they can't calm their own systems down enough to regulate their own emotions. So they're kind of stuck in this cycle that they don't know how to get out of. And if they're not able to get those skills at home, we really have to find a way to put this lens on top of our social emotional learning programs. And that's really what we're talking about is just putting another lens, the lens that says, I'm acknowledging when my kids are in thinking learning brain and I'm, I understand when they're in survival brain. And because I understand that, I can start figuring out what to do. And it's a troubleshooting process because as much as we love our kids, sometimes they don't want our help, right? Or maybe we've had a really great connection with a student, but then just somehow it changed. And we're like, what happened? Well, the good news is we have time, we have a chance to repair as well. So if we've had a, a bad connection with a student or we feel like that student's not making a connection with us, we can keep at it because maybe something happened completely unbeknownst to us that triggered something that has nothing to do with us and now there's negative tension between us. We can go back and repair that with a student. So don't give up. Don't give up on the ones that might push you away and be mean to you and give you a really hard time, or maybe their parents do it. We don't want to give up on them because really what they're saying is my cry is really loud. My cry is so loud and it hurts me so much. Hey, it's going to hurt you too. So those are the kids we're really trying to help too. So we want to keep them in thinking learning brain. We want to keep them out of survival brain. So how do we do that? First, we need to start asking those questions. This is where we get into a six hour because we have, we have ways to help show you how to learn how to identify this. And hopefully your handouts and the case of Josiah will help you get there if you don't have us available to walk you through it. But we need to start asking questions about these kids about what emotions is this child communicating? And what does shutdown mean when I see shutdown? And what does anger mean when I see anger? And are these things happening in the same places or with the same people? What's, what's the antecedent to that behavior? I need to understand. We want to look at those developmental milestones. Not all kids reach those milestones, quote unquote, on time right, or at the same time. So we also want to ask, are we looking at a child who maybe just is a little bit developmentally delayed as opposed to resistance or trauma, right? So we want to look at those developmental needs. And if we discover it's developmental, then we give them um, programming at that developmental level. So if they need to learn more about emotions or more about social skills, you're going to meet that child right where they are, even though they may be in the fifth grade or the 10th grade. We want to figure out where that child is and start there with these, what we take for granted as basic skills. We want to make sure, we want to investigate, you know, does this child feel connected? Where are the connections in this child's life? Are there connections with friends? Are there connections with relatives, parents, guardians, um, teachers? We want to find out where they feel connected and how many connections they have, because that helps. 
And then finally, we want to look up with the brain response. Does that child's response line up with the situation that just happened? So again, that's going to let us know this kid might be in survival brain because I just asked him to hand his paper in, and all of a sudden, he throws his chair, right? That was not, that was a mismatch, right? So we want to look at that and acknowledge when is there a mismatch, why did it occur, and what do we do to help the child recover from that state of distress or shutdown? So this is kind of the graph I use. I was telling Shaylin, I said, ooh, I should have made this. And then every time we mention a protective factor, we could put a green dot up. And every time we mention a risk factor, we would put a red dot up. But we can start looking through this formula to see where our children are at in those domains of development and safety and connections. Because we have to have all of these things. All of us have to have all of these things in alignment to be successful and healthy and to regulate our emotions and to have friendships. So really just going down, we're looking in social development theory, we can go through each rung of Maslow and Erickson and ask ourselves, were these basic needs met for this child? Oh, yes, green dot, oh. No, it sounds like some of these basic needs were not met. Those are some risk factors. And those tell us where we're at in learning brain and survival brain. Same thing with the autonomic nervous system. Have there been, has there been a chronic or acute exposure to um, danger? Have there been um, adverse experiences in this child's life? And what are the protective factors? So um, what are the skills you have? How do you cope? So some of us learn these great coping skills. Well, I know when I start feeling, it's good for me to go out and shoot some hoops. Or I know when I start feeling, I go to my room and start journaling. So does our student have any of those skills? And then finally, we wanna ask those attachment questions. Does this student seem to have secure attachments? Or am I looking at a student that seems avoidant, anxious, disorganized? Um, sometimes they're friends with people. Sometimes they're not friends. They're kind of hot and cold. What's happening here? So we can start to investigate and understand our children so that we can figure out where to meet them. So again, this is just reiterating, reiterating much of what we've already talked about, that all learners need everything that you see on this page. Um, but the real question is, how do we get there? And again, that goes back to this multi-theoretical lens of looking at development, connections, and safety. That's how we get to these places where we need to be. So responsive classrooms are really helpful for students that may have just a bad day or may have trauma backgrounds. So when we're in those um, classroom spaces, uh, the, the students can find ways to meet their own needs even. So again, I'm gonna go back to those safe spaces that a lot of schools are building, that's an option. Some kids need some sensory stimulation. Some kids need to get away from sensory stimulation. But how do I know? Well, we can ask, or we can ask for their permission to see what works, and we can work it out together with the child to find out. So we know that proactive goal-oriented systems work much better than reactive systems, especially with this group of kids. If a kid is already going down the hole of suspensions and truancies, we really need something that's more proactive and goal-oriented to pull them out of their spaces. Um, a student-centered culture and structure is ideal. 
I don't know that it's always possible because we are so overloaded in our classrooms, but if we can design our spaces to be student-centered, that can help our kids learn these skills. So for example, um, I saw a great post on Facebook, I should have stolen it and put it in here, but in a school building somewhere in Facebook land, um, the principal noticed, I got a lot of these kids that aren't coming prepared for school. They don't have the things they need and they were getting exhausted by it. So in the picture, how many people have seen this picture? Isn't it the best? They designed a wall where they put the paper and the pens and the pencils and the materials that they knew their students and that building needed to have because they were coming unprepared. So that's what we mean when we talk about building these classroom spaces that are student-centered. We ask ourselves, what do the kids in my classroom need to have? Okay, let's find a way to help them be independent and get their needs met. And we're gonna give them that, that opportunity and then we're gonna notice them and praise that, right? You did a good job meeting your needs. Um, the spaces help create connections and inspire curiosity. So if our kids are shutting down, we need to find a way to spark that curiosity because it's really easy to shut down in a classroom, right? In fact, I bet some of you have shut down in here already because it gets hard to listen to people for a long time. It's hard to have demands on us all the time. So we want to inspire curiosity and active learning in our kids. Uh, we want to rely on behavior systems that teach emotion regulation as opposed to reactive behavior systems. I'm going to say something very controversial, like clip charts. Behavior clip charts are really handy for us as teachers to monitor our data, but they do nothing to teach the kids. Oh wait, they do do something. They put them in survival brain, don't they? Yeah. Why would that? Good old embarrassment. So our behavior charts, although so helpful, also have a weak spot that sometimes they're calling our kids out and instead of feeling successful, they feel unsuccessful. And we all know we've got the kid that's always getting their clip moved. And you know who else knows? Everybody else in the room. <laughs> so we have to find some different ways, even though it's a quick, easy, method of collecting data. It's not teaching our kids what they need to learn, and that's kind of the point anyway. So we're, we're going to have to do a lot of heavy legwork on that um, because, again, we're super tired. <laughs> so we also need to be able to um, support our teachers and our administrators who are incorporating these practices into Tier 1 and Tier 2 interventions. And of course, it goes without saying this is in Tier 3. That's, you know, tier three, we're really working hard independently with that student to help them with a lot of these skills and possibly other academic skills as well. But we can incorporate this lens, this multi-theoretical lens into everything we do in our building in tier one and tier two. So we also have, you know, the handy dandy 15 things teachers can do to help. But I guess, um, how are we on time? We've got about 10 minutes. Oh, two, four, five? Great. So I'd really like to ask you guys, um, what are things that you think can do to help children in the classroom when they're having these experiences? Is it too hard when they're all up there already? How do you come up with another one and when they're 15 already? Okay. Oh, do you more? Okay. Time. Tell us Prioritize your feelings now, and you're okay. A lot of times, people mm -hmm. 
if they're you know engaged with the student with the response, don't give the appropriate amount of time for support. Okay, so I'm going to I'll repeat that for everyone in the back. What Justin? What Justin was telling us is that students sometimes need time to process these emotions. So if we have a student who's having a reaction that's not fitting in with our classroom environment right now, we might need to give them time if they're in that polyvagal res response system. So allow them time to de-escalate. We can't really ask them a lot of questions when, that's, when they're in that space. Sometimes I've even seen um, people ask, well, how are you feeling? I don't know how I'm feeling, right? So they can't really even answer these hard questions. Why did you do that? I don't know. And you know what? That's the truth. I don't know why I did that. But now we know, well, developmental, impulsive, or possibly response system. So again, more stuff that we've talked about. I'm recognizing the survival mode responding in kind and compassionate ways. We also know that our students, all of us, students and adults, no one really responds well to um, barking directions. You know, if, if my friend's like, go do that, and I'm in the middle of something, how do I respond? I will in a minute. Give me a second. Um, and so I think our kids, some of them even, are just feeling so overloaded. And they're in that stress, and they're barking at us, and we're stressed out, and we're overloaded, and we're barking back. So this is where I said that stress reduction and commitment from our administration to really acknowledge the need for our teachers and our kids to be able to manage our stress. That's another thing, too. And, um, yeah, step over. Working when we're talking about the polyvagal response, that the ventral vagal part, it's controlling the facial um, reactions here. And like, teachers have a lot of students. And you have a student that you're frequently redirecting and reminding over and over and over. And maybe you start to turn your face and you're frowning and you're closing off. And then you're giving that kid attitude. I gave you that homework already. Go get it out of your locker. OK, is that going to be effective? No, and it's hard for us to think to turn up and take it out of our mind. I've told this kid so many times, but that's when we take care of ourselves, self-care. Take a deep breath, tell the kid, go sit down, I'll get back to you in just a moment, so that you can gather yourself and approach again with a safe manner, with your face, facial expressions, at least in a neutral pattern, to effectively talk to that kid. Please go get that homework. Because if we're talking and we're being aggressive and we're attacking, it's putting that kid in this mode. So that's another thing that we can do. I do this to my children all the time. I have three boys. If anybody has boys, you might empathize with me. <laughs> so let's bring that up. Hey, nobody's perfect all the time. We all get to be forgiven for being human beings. We are all multidimensional. We've all got a lot of stuff on our plate. So the good news is, again, we can repair. Oh, you know what? I just went ballistic on my child. Uh, I need to repair that because if I don't, he feels afraid of me. Sad as that is, it's the truth. My own child will feel afraid of me if I don't repair that fear I put inside of him. But we can do that. And that is how he's going to start learning some emotion regulation, right? He's like, oh, we had this bad experience. My mom punished me. I hate her go into my room and I'm never coming out. And then I approach him with love and compassion and I seek that connection. I give him space because he doesn't like me to hug him right afterwards. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a baby. 
don't hug me, mom. Um, so that can help him learn, hey, you know what? I can make a mistake and I can still have a good relationship with this person. Somebody can yell at me and I can be really mad at them and maybe even think I hate them for a minute. But when they treat me nice again later on, that love is restored, that connection is restored, that sense of safety is restored, and we just keep building. So like Shay was saying earlier, it's kind of like, you know, we're just building on that, building those protective factors. Anything else? Can I ask a question? Yes. I'm just very curious, because I read an article a long time ago in the Old Reader's Digest when it talked about, rather than praising the child, praising the child's efforts. Oh, absolutely. And I'm just curious, what does your research say about this as far as praise mm -hmm. publicly? So what I can speak to, so I didn't introduce myself. My name is Shayla McAllister. I'm a school counseling intern. Uh, <laughs> I need a job. No. <laughs> I brought my resumes. Um, <laughs> so I've been a re research assistant for six years. And what we're taught when we're giving standardized testing, um, like the KBIT or um, yeah, pretty much keep it. So an IQ test, we praise the effort because if you praise specifically, it's going to misdirect the kid. So we say good job, we say just good job. The kid's thinking, oh, I did something right and it's gonna change their mind and they're gonna start thinking there's a pattern of, oh, she said good job here, that means that I have to answer this way. And if we're talking about developmentally and talking in the classroom, if we are praising certain things like what you were talking about, it could start a different channel in that kid's life. So if we praise effort, great job working, great job turning that work in on time, it can start turning into the kid's mind of, hey, oh, I, yeah, I, I turned that in. Okay, cool. Maybe I can start turning things in more often or be in class on time. So I have a feeling that it's okay to praise effort on a child because it can start building up in different types of connections there. Did that answer your questions, Dr. Cook? Yes. Okay. <laughs> also that vital sense of self-worth. How do I have a sense of self-worth if I don't even know what I'm good at, right? If you, but, but that's a big picture thing. If you say good job, that's, fan, that's still fabulous, right? But we want to make sure that we're, we're doing multiple things. It's good job mm -hmm. and hey, good effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we do not have time to go through the case of Josiah, but you have Josiah, some of you have Josiah's case. But the idea was to look at a case study of a student and start identifying where are we in thinking and learning brain. So this is kind of the first step of making this assessment that we've been talking about. So um, as your, your pencils summarized the presentation today, so what we know is that developmental level Attachment, connections, and safety give all people the ability to have self-awareness, social awareness, gives them the ability to self-regulate their emotions, and it gives them those life skills that they've got to have. to Not just to, quote unquote, make it in the world, but to have good relationships in the rest of their lives. Because we need good relationships, right? So thank you, everyone. Do you have any questions for us that we can answer? You don't have to. Yeah, awesome. We have lots of pencils if anyone wants to take them back to their principals. <laughs>